Hey guys, I just wanted to record a quick introduction to this video. First of all, this is not my work. I got this from a uh, YouTube channel many years ago that has sadly been completely inactive. I've reached out to try to find out who the original author of these essays was, and I wasn't able to get a response, but we're talking about double digits in years. This video series had a profound impact on my way of looking at the world. So if you happen to be somebody who's heavily on the right, you won't agree with everything that is presented in this video, but it will at least be useful to you to understand where my actual perspective comes from. Left libertarianism is not state socialism at all. In fact, he calls that out quite a bit in this series. Um, but it's also not unfettered capitalism. It comes in many forms, some of which have you know a market and some of which do not. And in the end, the author calls instead of for everybody living necessarily by the same system, that perhaps we could actually become communities that work together, you know, even if we have different systems that we conduct, you know, ourselves by, you know, as far as our specific community by, that we could still work together collectively to protect each other's freedoms. So anyway, without further ado, um, I give you the left libertarian. I'm going to link the original channel uh, in my description. Um, I think I've contained just about all of his essays in this video, but um, if it is kind of long, so if you're one of those people who can't listen to a long video, just take it in pieces. Come back to it whenever you want. I mean, YouTube stores where you were, you know, where you left off anyway. Thanks again. Great power in America is concentrated in a handful of people. A few thousand individuals out of the 300 million Americans decide about war and peace, wages and prices, consumption and investment, employment and production, law and justice, taxes and benefits, education and learning, health and welfare, advertising and communication, life and leisure. In all societies, primitive and advanced, totalitarian and democratic, capitalist and socialist, only a few people exercise great power. In a modern, complex industrial society, power is concentrated in large institutions, corporations, banks, utilities, insurance companies, broadcasting networks, the White House, Congress, and the large investment houses, the foundations, the universities, and the private policy planning organizations. Power is not an attribute of individuals, but social organizations. Large institutions derive their roles in a social organization by the individuals who occupy top institutional positions. They possess power, whether they act directly to influence particular decisions or not. Democracy, the system in which people vote, is supposed to rule from the bottom up. Society is supposed to be the expression of the public will. Instead, power and authority is vested in powerful institutions that rule from the top down. They are anti-democratic and hence authoritarian by their very nature. The two major sources of power in America are the government and the private sector. They exert major influence over the public, with or without their knowledge or consent. In simplistic terms, the left is the defender of the government, while the right tends to be apologists for the private sector. Because of this, power is never really dissolved. It just moves from one institution to another. Nothing changes. What we have today is a system in which there is a stalemate in Washington, and the two powers in charge have virtually nullified the political process. Politics today seems to come down to five or six issues. We argue endlessly about tax cutting or education, while most decisions are made behind closed doors. I'm not saying that the debates of today are not important, but they are limited to what we could be talking about. Society should be a dynamic and self-perfecting system. In Star Trek The Next Generation, society has learned to replicate food and material stuff. World hunger is gone. Materialism is dead. Society is free to allow themselves to pursue what comes from their innermost being the pursuit of art, sport, and philosophy, exploration of the universe, the discovery of themselves, play, socializing with others, and the pursuit of happiness. These are not on the political agenda today. Every human wants to pursue these innermost ideals because they are innate. We are born with them. A left libertarian society, I believe, recognizes these inner wants and tries to pursue them. They do this not by moving power around, by moving it from the public to the private sector, or vice versa but by moving power from centralized institution 
and placing that power in the hands of the public. Today, the government role has been severely limited so that the private sector has swept in and uses the government to its own ends. The two powers, in many ways, have merged, government being an expression of corporate interest. The deck has been rigged, which ensures that the public will lose. The great disparities in wealth give a tremendous advantage to those who can buy and sell industries, buy and sell people's labor and services, buy and sell the means of communication, subsidize the educational system, and buy and sell political candidates themselves. The term left libertarian seems to be contradictory or even counterintuitive. The philosophies, we are told, come from opposite ends of the political spectrum. In reality, I think they are a natural progression of political history. To understand what I mean, I need to go back. In hunter-gathering societies, humans were extremely mobile, moving from one place to another in order to survive. All the individuals were equal in power as far as we know, and the decisions were made by the group. Each day was about survival. You hunted food, and then you ate it. Eventually, these groups began to domesticate animals and plants so they didn't have to hunt every day. This led to an agrarian society where people didn't always need to be on the move. They became sedentary to tend to their flock and their fields. The population grew as they learned to store food in pots and food storages. At this time, it is believed that class division arose. Some individuals plowed the fields while others guarded the food. There had to be managers over the crops and the priests to interpret the stars. Gone were the salad days of equality. Armies were created to protect food storages, and some were used to invade other groups for their resources. The most powerful armies eventually grew to become states. All power was vested into the hands of the king. For the next couple thousand years, the state changed very little. Monarchs replaced kings, theocracies replaced monarchs, feudalism replaced aristocracies. Everything changed during the Enlightenment. Some of the greatest political philosophers have given us the liberty we enjoy today. People like John Locke, David Hume, Thomas Jefferson, Rousseau, Adam Smith, and Wilhelm von Humboldt. They, too, asked what human nature was because, naturally, society should be an expression of the public will. Many of them concluded that human beings were creative, self-perfecting, self-exploring beings in search of happiness as the ultimate aim in life. But the government, with its all-powerful authority, prevented people by controlling their actions. Essentially, the government was an anti-human institution and stunted human growth. America was founded with many of these ideals, and many of them are expressed in the Constitution. The right wing in America claims to be the descendants of many of these beliefs. While the Enlightenment philosophers limited state power, it took the left to fight private power. During the Industrial Revolution, the market was born. Soon it became all-powerful. Private enterprise replaced what the Enlightenment figures had destroyed. Humans became like cattle in factories under some of the most depraved conditions. Totalitarianism was back, just in a new form. Most people don't seem to understand that Karl Marx and many of his followers were a reaction to this new authoritarian system. Unfortunately, state socialism and trying to defeat private power became itself just as brutal. Many philosophers on the left understood this. People like Bakunin and Proudhon predicted that the state would again become all-powerful. Around the time of the Civil War, both the abolitionist and labor movement began to grow. Many in the labor movement compared working for wages, slave labor, to that of black slavery because both of them left the human impoverished and denied them the economic and political independence essential to Republican citizenship. Before wage slavery, people built their own homes and grew their own food. That was a powerful notion. You could be proud of the things you produced. You had complete control over your life and could enjoy the fruits of your labor. But then people were divorced from their labor. At the same time, a small minority of industrialists started to use the majority as another commodity. Human beings could be bought and sold in the market and used for any purpose. For instance, Jay Gould, a railroad tycoon, said that, I can hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. In 1763, Simon Longay compared working for wages to slave labor when he said, It is the impossibility of living by any other means that compels our farm laborers to till the soil whose fruit they will not eat, and our masons to construct buildings in which they will not live. It is one that drags them to those markets, where they await masters who will do them the kindness of buying them. It is one that compels them to go down on their knees to the rich man, in order to get from him permission to enrich him. What effective gain has suppression of slavery brought him? He is free, you say. Ah, 
That is his misfortune. These men, it is said, have no master. They have one, and the most terrible, the most imperious of masters, that is need. It is this that reduces them to the most cruel dependence. They live only by hiring out their arms. They must therefore find someone to hire them, or die of hunger. Is that to be free? In the early 1900s, the left fought and gave us many rights including minimum wage, direct election of senators, the 8-hour workday, overtime pay, and women's right to vote. Before this time, human beings were reduced to animals, but the system continues. Thanks to the left, times are better, but we are still cogs in a machine, caught and suspended in history. Today, we are dissatisfied with the workplace. We still sell our body and soul into the marketplace to be used by a minority. The humiliating task of working to enrich the people above is taking its toll. We are herded into sterile cubicles under fluorescent lights. We are told when to show up to work, what to wear, what to say, how we should act. We have to ask permission to go to lunch or take off because a child at home is sick. This is the new reality. Dictators don't have this much control. It turns out, much like the state, private power is also an anti-human institution and stunts human growth. The left is just an extension of the Enlightenment philosophers. I don't think, at their core, the philosophies of the left and the right are that much different and even enhance one another. While much progress has been made, today the two main sources of power are colluding. Currently, the private sector uses government intervention that includes state funding for industries such as military spending, the creation of social infrastructure too expensive for private capital to provide like railways and freeways, the funding of research that companies cannot afford to undertake, protective tariffs to protect developing industries from more efficient international competition, giving private interests preferential access to land and other natural resources, providing education to the general public that ensures they have the skills and the attitude required by private companies, using government power to stretch corporate reach into countries to protect capital investments abroad in order to create markets to get access to raw materials and cheap labor, using government spending to stimulate consumer demand in the face of recession and stagnation, maintaining a natural level of unemployment that can be used to discipline workers, so ensuring that they produce more or less, manipulating the interest rate in order to try to reduce the effects of the business cycle and undermine workers' gains in their everyday struggle. In the next video, I'll be discussing the most important aspects of left libertarianism. Their main goal is to end institutional hierarchy, which is authoritarian, with a bottom-up system by enhancing democracy both in the workplace and in our communities. Both philosophies of the left and the right have made the world better by removing power from centralized institutions. Left libertarianism is a natural progression of that history. We have seen that when hierarchy is weakened, from dictators to parliamentary democracies, life becomes better. But history is not over. We need a new vision that allows our most precious desires to animate a new society. It is time to stop moving power around and return it to where it belongs, to the public. Any free society should be based on the concept of voluntary action, but voluntary action alone does not lead to a free society. Voluntarism has been popularized by the concept that you own yourself. If you own yourself, then you should be able to sell your time, body, and hence, your liberty. The problem with this argument is that you don't own yourself, you are yourself. To say that you own something implies that there is an owner and the thing that is owned. You can't sell your labor because you are your labor. Otherwise, people would go back to sleep when their alarm clock goes off while their labor goes off to work. While the argument of self-ownership sounds interesting and even implies the concept of liberty, the reality is the opposite. The very idea of self-ownership turns people into commodities. It strips the humanity out of humans. People can now be bought and sold in the marketplace. On a larger scale, the commodification of human beings has stripped the humanity out of society leaving a landscape devoid of human qualities and a people completely alienated from each other, a society in which we exist in invisible cages. The commodification and exploitation of people has always existed, but it was capitalized by Frederick Taylor and his theory of scientific management. In the late 1800s, Taylor complained that workers were lazy and can produce exponentially more by tough management. He studied the motions of workers to find out how to increase their productivity. It turns out that if an employee performed the same task over and over, then he could manufacture more product. Anyone who refused to conform to Taylor's methods were fired and had their wages reduced. 
Soon, a new class of managers emerged, while the highly experienced labor force was transformed into unskilled workers. It was Taylor's belief that all would be benefited by his methodology. To his surprise, with the increase of productivity and profits, the workers' wages were stagnant and even decreased. Scientific management, along with a new class of managers, quickly spread to all sectors of the economy. All of society, the schools, the workplace, the government, could be turned into large assembly lines. The fast food industry today epitomizes Taylor's legacy. Behind the counter, kitchens are geared so the worker doesn't have to move or even think. Each person performs the same repetitive task endlessly like robots. The factory of yesterday has been transformed into the high-rise in the cubicle. The factory foreman has been replaced by the suit and tie. Almost every job, including office work, has been reduced to monotonous tasks, typing, printing, going to meetings, and generating reports that nobody reads. It's all the same every day, these dungeons dressed in fluorescent lights, phony smiles, and mundane tasks. We were told that if we went to college, we would be marine biologists, psychologists, and writers. With the exception of a few, nothing could be further from the truth. The average student debt today is over $23,000. All those wannabe artists, sociologists, and investigative journalists have been prepped for the reality of the cubicle, not for their choosing, because they must pay back their loans. These people will be herded into sterile offices like animals because the world doesn't want truly creative people. The private sector needs people who can write memos, push papers, and calculate profits and losses. The managers will impose work tempos, production quotas, you punch in, you punch out, surf the internet, you'll stay late, you'll daydream about what life could have been because this isn't living, this is dying. While the government is usually blamed for limiting individual freedom, nothing attacks human liberty and sovereignty more than the workplace. A person can buy you and extract your labor. An entire system of ultra-surveillance ensures obedience to your superiors. Regulations are all prevailing. You are told when to show up to work, when you can leave, and what you must do in the meantime. They watch over you, inspect you, spy on you. They punish, forbid, correct, assess, number, and abuse. You are told what to wear, you are trained how to talk, and you are forced to compete with other workers. When you talk back or make a mistake, you can be disciplined or scolded as if you were an infant. To paraphrase Bob Black, discipline is what the factory and the office and the store share with the prison and the school and the mental hospital. It is something historically original and horrible. It was beyond the capacities of demonic dictators such as Nero, Genghis Khan, and Ivan the Terrible. For all their bad intentions, they just didn't have the machinery to control their subjects as thoroughly as modern despots do. This is the complete annihilation of human dignity, transforming people into prisoners. Even the most totalitarian states never had this much dominion over their subjects. We used to get injured on the playground. Now we get occupational overuse syndrome, musculoskeletal disorder, repetitive strain, tendonitis, cervical ridiculopomy, ulnar entrapment. We have problems with our eyes and our spine that even the best doctors can't figure out. The sedentary lifestyle is the new trend, along with its legion of diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity. Performing the same task day after day, week after week, year after year, is an assault on the human psyche. Nothing can be more detrimental to human growth, creativity, personal progress than the tedium of the workplace. When a person carries out the same monotonous job, they are naturally drained of energy at the end of each day. It is no wonder, then, that the average person spends over four hours a day watching television. Consider that. We spend eight hours at work, eight hours sleeping, and after preparing for work, commuting to work, and eating at home, we only have five hours to ourselves, and four of those are spent in front of the television. We actually live in a society that nurtures and maximizes stupidity and stunts human potentiality. Repetition is the enemy of every worker, the chains of humanity, yet it is the liberator of the business executive and the managers. Instead of using technology to free individuals, as it could be, the private sector has turned people into gears and into commodities, while they are the beneficiaries. These people make a living off of our lives, stripping us of our dignity, stealing our meaningfulness, and seizing our essence. Frederick Taylor's legacy has become ubiquitous. In the last 100 years, his methods have been studied, improved, and refined with immense precision. Scientific management is today's god. Its technique has saturated everything. 
Our schools, our workplace, the intelligentsia, the government, and even our lives are regimented with this insanity. We can see it all around us in the cars we drive, in the advertising we see, in the government that doesn't work, and in the homes we live. When something is so pervasive, we become entangled in its net. Every day is the same, a repetition with no end, dulling the person until they feel like they are living in a dark haze underwater. We were told that if we worked hard enough, we could experience the American dream. What we weren't told is that there isn't one, and there never was one. A new reality awaits our young, where wealth inequality has been celebrated and deified. Yet inequality has created the separation of power, and power, more than anything else, limits liberty. The workplace needs to be transformed, not by de-skilling labor as Taylor did. Instead, we need to liberate workers. Every employee should have the opportunity to participate in a variety of jobs from manual to intelligent labor. Workers should have equity in the workplace so they can call it their own. They should not be perceived as mere automata or commodities on a factory line, but as living beings. We should be building technology to liberate, not to enslave. All tedious and unwanted jobs should be reduced or automated. Most of all, we should be producing not for the market, but for people. It is important not to completely dismiss Taylor and his methods. Productivity is important. After all, both the U.S. and the Soviets under Lenin used Taylor's methods to pull themselves out of the Dark Ages. However, there comes a time in every society to transform such barbaric and childish techniques with moderation and compassion. That time is now. We cannot talk about liberty if we can't even mention the place that we spend a third of our life. But it's voluntary, you say. That is always the answer, repeated and repeated. It's voluntary. We live in freedom. No, we don't live in freedom. We live in invisible cages. We live in slavery. While it is true that every free society should be voluntary, voluntarism is not enough. Labor should be humanity's highest aspiration, the basis of one's dignity. Until the day comes when the thinker works and the worker thinks, free, intelligent labor can emerge and humanity can once again be instituted. Work sucks, few will argue with that. However, people are only as free as their economic situation allows. Each day we sell ourselves in the market in exchange for basic survival. For this work, this rat cage, we spend about a third of our lives enriching others, stifling our own human growth and creativity, dumbing ourselves down by microtasks, and relinquishing our personal freedom. The repetition, humiliation, and dehumanization of our system begs the question, why? There must be a better way. I call for the transformation of the workplace. The first step is to implement a tested alternative to our system of production, worker self-management. In my next video, I'll discuss other transformations, what some call the abolition of work. Change cannot take place on a superficial level. Change must reach into the institutions that cultivate and shape who we are. We have to examine the underlying structures that ultimately produce and express the society we live in. These structures and institutions help cultivate the way people live, think, act, socialize, and whether individuals develop wealth or live in poverty. The success of an institution is measured by the level of participation of the individual actors. The more self-interest one has in the institution's outcome, the more energetically they participate. They are more likely to put in much more time, effort, and passion into the institutions if they stand to gain something from it. The modern business institution is defined by a continued acquisition of ever more money and power. We might at some point have asked ourselves what we would do in exchange for $10 million. The answers vary, of course. While I do not consider myself a materialistic person, I have to admit that I'd probably commit some terrible crimes for this ultimate prize. The good thing is, I never asked this question. However, this is exactly what they are talking about when the leaders of business face tough decisions. They answer this question daily. They answer it with working conditions, by exploiting environmental disasters, by the influence of government and media, outsourcing, and sometimes even promoting war and death. Our largest institution actually increases criminal pursuits and maximizes immoral behavior. Not only does centralizing power foster immoral behavior, but it also creates inefficiencies and has been shown to be highly unproductive and bureaucratic. The use of central planning by the Soviets demonstrates what happens when power is concentrated into the hands of an elite. The corporation and modern-day business have a lot in common with Stalinism. 
Corporations use a centralized form of planning, even calling the upper tier a government. The top management takes decisions based on highly aggregated data, the quality of which is hard to know. The management then suffers from an information and knowledge deficiencies while the workers below lack the sufficient autonomy to act to correct the inefficiencies as well as the incentive to communicate accurate information and act to improve the production process. Therefore, inefficiencies become magnified because the few cannot know the needs and wants of an entire population. One way to resolve these deficiencies is by rearranging our institutions to allow for worker self-management. Under this system, all the workers are the owners and the operators of the workplace. Every employee has equity in the workplace and an incentive to see their own enterprise do well. Under workers' control, employees have a say over their own environment and hence their own lives. Because every worker is an owner, major decisions are made by democratic action. One worker, one vote. Power does not flow from the top down. Instead, power is equally shared among all the employees. To have a democratic workplace is not to say that every minor decision is made by the group. Most workers would carry out their regular jobs, but when everyone is affected by a problem, they all work together to negotiate a solution amongst themselves. Because every employee is a manager and an owner, they need to use their own ingenuity, intelligence, and creativity to run their own enterprise. The mechanisms of self-management facilitates the natural unfolding of these positive human attributes. At the same time, a feedback loop is created that maximizes these results. Over time, workers predictably become more intelligent and become more willing to use all of their human faculties in the process of self-management and production. People who are invested in the success of the enterprise will balance their need to have a decent work atmosphere with the effect on overall production. Obviously, nobody wants to carry out the same monotonous task, so jobs like these would be distributed or automated. The workers would share a variety of jobs from manual to more intelligent labor. This doesn't mean that specialization would be eliminated. Specialists would coexist and make decisions affecting their areas of expertise amongst themselves, unless the decision affects the rest of the group. The supervisors of today would be eliminated. If a group of workers feel they need somebody to administer their jobs, they would choose amongst themselves. Moreover, if a manager is not performing his or her duties or treating the employees harshly, that person can be pulled by democratic action. Another side effect of self-management is that competition between employees is replaced by cooperation and solidarity. Adversarial relationships are eliminated when everyone has an equal stake in whether they succeed or fail. All this creates a sense of brother and sisterhood which is reinforced because it is in the individual's self-interest to assist each other. This is actually positive for production and productivity. For instance, when cooperation and competition are measured in comparison, study after study and even studies that review other studies show that cooperation is more efficient, productive, and effective. Competition restricts the flow of information between individuals, it redirects energy and impedes progress. When ideas and power are centralized in any body, they become highly bureaucratic and ineffective. Every worker-run enterprise will run according to whatever approach works best. This allows for dynamic creative experimentation and flexibility to meet the complexities of the economy. Without CEOs, CFOs, VPs of this and that, and boards of directors, the waste and massive salaries they receive would pull back to the employees and eliminate the massive incentive for opportunistic immorality. That all sounds great, but the next question is, does worker self-management work? Both history and current research prove that yes, they do. For instance, during the Spanish Civil War, many factories in Spain came under workers' control. In Aragon, productivity jumped 20%, while the standard of living was raised by 50 to 100% within a few months. Almost every industry, including health, agriculture, energy, textiles, transportation, water, and most service industries saw large jumps in productivity. Literally millions of workers were participating and self-managing their own affairs in this industrial society before it was crushed out by the communist and fascist armies. One of the largest worker-run companies today is Mondragon in Spain. This federation of worker-run firms consists of 256 companies with almost 93,000 employees. Since 1956, Mondragon has continued to grow and is today's seventh largest company in Spain. Even today, cooperatives play a large part in the world economy. They provide over 100 million jobs around the globe. In some countries such as Finland, cooperatives contribute to over 16% of the GDP. This model is more productive and efficient because it demands that every person work in their own self-interest instead of benefiting the few. 
Employees today do as little work as possible while creating the illusion that they are working hard. This is natural because there is little incentive for most employees to realize their full potential. The institutionalization of business corrupts and mangles everything it touches, including ourselves. Power and self-interest cannot and should not be centralized. Today, contributing to society by meeting your basic economic needs can mean cooperating in a world of maximized greed and immorality. There is no reason to try to reform the system. Today, the modern business and corporation suffers from the same psychosis and inefficiencies as Stalinism. Most industrialized countries have been smart not to follow the Soviet course directly. However, they've handed centralized power to the hands of modern-day business. The incentive to act immorally is too great for any small collection of people to have. That is why power must be completely decentralized and return to the rightful owner, the individual. We have a workable alternative. Employees should be the managers of their own work, their own surroundings, and their own lives. Self-management is possible in the first step to deconstructing the absolutely dysfunctional nature of our society. Worker self-management maximizes cooperation, critical thinking, creativity. It demands people to take control of their lives and their surroundings. It does this not by assuming people are selfless beings, but assumes people will follow their own self-interest and thereby produce and maximize these positive results. The whole system of worker self-management therefore helps to produce a society of decent, intelligent, and responsible people. The whole idea behind democracy is that the general public should participate in making the decisions that affect their lives. Democracy, like freedom, can take many forms. Even in totalitarian states, there are some freedoms, likewise with a democracy. There are some states, such as Cuba and Iran, that practice small amounts of democracy, and yet they are limited to a narrow range of options, and most would say they are not democratic at all. There are generally two different types of democracy, representative and direct. However, Representative democracy is not democratic. Direct or participatory democracy allows the voice of the public to be heard, unhindered in its purest form. This allows the members to be self-managed without the use of bureaucrats and politicians. I think we can all agree that politicians are corrupt. Every day, someone is being accused of and exposed for their crimes, ranging from perjury to theft of public money. Society should not be forced to choose the best of two evils. The Center for Responsive Politics, the leading nonpartisan organization that records money in politics, found that in the 2008 elections, 93% of the House of Representative races and 94% of the Senate were won by the candidate who spent the most money. This reality is not just reserved for Congress. Barack Obama also outspent all other candidates, including John McCain, to win the presidency. Much of the money that comes from political financing is produced by corporate donations, political action committees, and wealthy individuals. Top industries literally spent billions of dollars to pay for our current Congress. In 2008, there were 14,800 lobbyists who spent $3.3 billion to influence politicians. This is pretty amazing considering there are only 535 members of Congress. This shows that one person, one vote is just a myth. It is money, not people, that decide the fate of elections and our lives. Politicians do not represent the public. Instead, they represent industries who pay for them to be there. In order to win elections, the politicians must hire teams of people who turn them into demagogues, who use certain phrases, dress in certain clothes, use ambiguous forms of speech about ideas that nearly 100% of the public agrees with, such as the right to freedom and democracy. Their speeches are rehearsed, studied, calculated, marketed, spun, and branded. In the meantime, politicians must hide their true motives, personality, vices, and beliefs. Because speeches are so vague, this causes people to interpret them to the point of conspiracy theories. Politicians may be moral as individual people, but by necessity, they must participate in a system which forces them to be dishonest. They cannot act and say what they want to say. Political representatives do not represent society because their actions are geared to appeal to the least common denominator. When they do act, we can see who they truly represent. According to a study from the University of Kansas, big companies that spent hundreds of millions lobbying successfully for tax breaks enacted in 2004 got a 22,000% return on that investment. Even worse are the companies who received money from the TARP bailouts. Those companies received 258,000% for the $114 million they spent on campaign donations and lobbying. 
Some companies, such as AT&T, give to both political parties in order to hedge their bets and guarantee access to the political realm. In 2008, they gave out $43 million in campaign contributions. 49% of that money went to the Democrats, and 51% went to the Republicans. Since 1990, AT&T has given to both political parties close to the same amount. There's a long history of campaign contributors being paid back with government jobs. Recently, Obama has been giving campaign bundlers, people who gather large sums of money for his presidential bid, major diplomatic positions including posts in Spain, Norway, Australia, Luxembourg, and the European Union. Obama has also given other posts to financial bundlers, including the job of Deputy of the United States Trade Representative. He has also posted delegates to the Organization of American States, the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, and to the UN Management and Reform. This is routine procedure for both Democrats and Republicans. There is also a history of the government working closely with the business sector, allowing executives to move from the private to the public sector and vice versa. The executives don't stop working for the benefit of the private sector while they are in public office. Companies pay to have access for their own people to sit at the table, creating favors they will receive, usually in the form of regulation and deregulation, tax breaks, and other gifts. While working for the Clinton administration, Robert Rubin helped to merge Citicorp and Travelers by deregulation. After his time with the Clinton administration, he went on to work for the merged company, Citigroup. Today, Robert Rubin is an economic advisor for the Obama administration. Elections are big business. Money always wins. The system of democracy should move from the bottom up. Instead, authority flows downward to shape people's thoughts, hopes, attitudes, and beliefs. Politicians tell people what they should think, dream, and who they should hate, fear, and worship. They shape who we are instead of the other way around. To win elections, our representatives acquiesce to money powers and comply to the public relation firms, the front groups, and the powerful think tanks to help manipulate the media. All of these groups collude in vast networks, propagating information and molding public opinion into what moneyed interests deem to be important, making sure that certain issues are not raised by minimizing debate, and attacking any group that threatens their own welfare. The greatest danger the system produces is the narrowing range of political debate. We are told again and again that the political spectrum is no broader than the range of Republican and Democrat, that society can only make decisions that fall into the realm of taxes, abortion, health care, and education. But even these issues fall into a limited range. The political realm has been virtually nullified. There is no meaningful change because the system of representative democracy, by its very nature, demands consistently flat results. It shouldn't be that every two to four years we leave our homes to vote for one of two people to become our representative. This one person is supposed to represent the public will and make decisions for every human being that they represent. It doesn't matter that 63% of Utah didn't vote for Obama or that 58% of New York voted against Bush. They will have to listen and submit themselves to the rule of this human being that they have never met and will never meet. These outcomes are against the very idea of freedom. As President Bush always liked to say, I am the decider. While some people found this statement undemocratic, it is the reality of our nation. All of this is not to say that democracy is inherently evil, but politicians are not representatives or even expressions of human wants, desires, or wishes. It's not that politicians want to be bureaucratic. They are bureaucrats. And it's not like some politicians are demagogues and others not. They all are. They have to be demagogues to win elections. Politicians may not like lying, pretending, spouting catchphrases, or even kissing babies. They have to take money for favors to help large corporations and industries if they want to win. It's easy to see that our politicians are anything but representative of the makeup of our society. Aside from the obvious race and gender gap, these people do not live in the same economic bracket as the rest of society. The personal finances in the House of Representatives averages out to about $5 million, while the typical senator household brings in closer to 16. Jane Harmon of California leads the list with a net worth of almost $400 million. These Congress members are not a composite of American society. They do not live in the same houses as we do. They do not understand what it is like not to have health insurance. They do not understand the daily suffering of ordinary Americans. They don't work regular jobs. Some have never even been a part of the workforce. These so-called representatives fly in private jets, attend parties that we will never attend, 
Eat at restaurants we could never afford. Dress in clothes we will never wear. And relax on yachts we will only see in the movies. These people know nothing of our lives and our financial struggles. It has long been known that the Soviet style of economics does not work because a small group of elites cannot know all the intricacies and interactions of an entire functioning economy and society. It's just too complex. Only the people on the ground can have any true understanding of the needs and wants to fulfill their lives and thereby create a society that will fulfill the public's wishes. Our style of democracy shares the same dysfunctional nature as the Soviets. Until we can form new ways of social interaction and decision making, we cannot say we live in a truly democratic society, because representative democracy is not democracy and never has been. Our system of voting takes ordinary people and turns them into immoral politicians. The politicians become corrupt, not because they want to, but because the system requires it. These people cannot be reformed, because the apparatus in which they work does not allow it. Trying to find the best politician is not the answer. The reason why is because politicians should not exist, nor should the system of representative democracy. Humanity has come far from the days of hunting and gathering. Our ancestors have pierced mountains, built miles of canals, constructed epic monuments, cleared entire forests, laid rails across entire continents, penetrated some of nature's deepest secrets, and explored the skies and waters. Societies before us have left the gifts of their greatest discoveries and treasures. None of these innovations can be said to come from a single individual. They took collective knowledge, human ingenuity, and labor. The workers in former times bled, sweat, and died in pursuit of these achievements. Knowledge comes slow, one piece layered onto the other, building through time and human generations. Societies have also progressed. Millions have struggled and died for the freedoms we have today. The concentration of power from kings to monarchs has been slowly wrestled away. In the time of absolute monarchy, there was only one individual in charge. Today, the disbursement of power has shifted from the one to the many. But power is still concentrated in the hands of a few. We all know who they are. They are the politicians, the business executives, the wealthy, and the well-connected. Individual liberty has also made tremendous gains, especially in recent times. We need not thank former governments or romanticized individuals. Instead, we should thank the people who declared and stood up for what belongs to them, the unquestionable right to individual sovereignty. For years, there has been a raging debate between the schools of collectivism and individualism. In general terms, people on the left tend to think of society as a whole. For example, what's good for the group is good for all. On the other hand, people on the right believe that the individual is supreme, and by working to improve one's personal well-being, society at large benefits. I believe both of these statements are equally true. A flower may be what catches the eye. However, we must recognize the contribution made by the rest of the plant, because the flower is not separate from the plant. They are a part of the same thing. At the same time, we have to respect the part that is the flower and respect its beauty and individuality. From a left libertarian point of view, collectivism and individualism are misnomers. The two are just aspects of the same thing. For individuals, human liberty must be maximized. People should be allowed to do whatever they please, moral or immoral, as long as they do not harm another person or another person's possessions. At the same time, we need to recognize that people do come together to form collective groups. This might be at work, in the political realm, associations, school, or wherever. When people do congregate, there are new dynamics. Whether people recognize it or not, these groups are working collectively towards some end. For example, in the workplace, an individual associates with others and pushes forward with some ultimate purpose in mind. If a group of friends get together, no person should tell the others what to do. They should decide together by consensus or by a majority in free association. This seems like a basic truism we all live by, yet most of our social relationships are organized with one person telling the others what to do. In these groups, People willfully submit to a ruler because they are coerced, threatened, bribed, or punished. They must promise to be obedient and willing commodities, ready to be used, labeled, numbered, dehumanized, and made subject to ridicule and humiliation. In essence, people enter into a master-slave relationship. Any society that lives by these hierarchies cannot be said to be free.
Participatory democracy is a system in which people vote in collective gatherings in order to decide their fate and maximize collective liberty. Again, this type of democracy should have absolutely no bearing on the individual. People are to act, say, and do as they please, as long as they do not harm others or their possessions. Participatory democracy should only exist in the realm where people congregate and everyone in that group is affected. Its function is not for personal liberty, but collective liberty. One without the other is like saying you are half free. Instead of one person telling everyone else what to do, the group as a whole makes the decisions. This group is said to be self-managed. One person, one vote. There are no leaders or hierarchies. Everyone is equal. If a member chooses not to vote, that's fine. He or she should not be forced to do so. In order for this type of democracy to work, groups or assemblies should not exceed 250 people. Otherwise, not everyone would be heard and the system would become too complex. Representatives, such as politicians or managers, are replaced by delegates. Delegates are elected by the group. They make no speeches and hold no formal power. Their only job is to carry out the tasks assigned by the group. If the group makes a decision and the delegate carries out a different task, they can be recalled. In a society organized like this, a decentralized network of communities would naturally occur with groups that would freely associate with one another. Democracy should be directly proportional to how it affects your life. In other words, more power is held in the community rather than some far-off place. Decisions would not flow down, but would bubble up from the surface naturally and express society's greatest wishes. This would allow the people to create a society based on their own desires and dreams, rather than the isolated society they exist in today. It is a sick society when we barely know our neighbors, when we walk past each other with a hesitated glance, when our fellow workers are seen as nothing more than competition, and when an elite minority dominates the majority. A participatory democracy allows us to interact within our communities, our workplace, and our social gatherings in an atmosphere of equality, mutual respect, and mutual agreement. We should be the ones making the decisions, coming up with the ideas, and implementing the ends with our fellow human beings. Today, we are working collectively not for kings or monarchs, but for our paymasters. We work for politicians who use our money for their hidden agendas. We work for CEOs who steal a portion of our labor for their personal gain. These are the new kings. They hold society in shackles while they are free. It is not just collective liberty that is being held hostage to their whims. It is the individual. Currently, all of our energy, creativity, intelligence, time, and liberty are working for an elite minority. They are nothing but thieves living off of our blood, sweat, and tears for their freedom. In a participatory democracy, groups can come together freely and decide their own future. Our ancestors built the pyramid for the pharaohs. Imagine what a free society could achieve if it were free to manage its resources and labor. Humans, while superficially different, are almost identical in DNA to each other. Our DNA is physically expressed in the flesh, including the makeup of our brain. As a result, our thoughts, ideas, emotions, morality, and hopes travel the same path. Again, the differences in physicality are superficial. A common thread is the desire to pursue personal satisfaction in a wide range of human experience. My personal hope is that true freedom, extended by participatory democracy to all, would push society towards something along the lines of post-scarcity. Resources would be available to everyone, eliminating need, poverty, and economic suffering. Tedious jobs would be automated to reduce unnecessary tasks, so that work becomes a choice. In this environment, we would be free to spend our time pursuing the things we love, such as art, sports, socializing with friends and family, playing music, traveling, learning, or just daydreaming. The human desire to create would produce genuine, rather than competitive, innovation. Whether this future is achievable is yet to be seen. However, these ideas can only be achieved if people work toward these ends. Throughout history, rulers, be they kings, chiefs, monarchs, dictators, managers, or politicians, have dominated our lives. As time has passed, the one has turned into the many. They have been the decision makers, telling us how to live, what to think, and how to be. Their time is over. A participatory democracy makes everyone a ruler unto themselves. In this decentralized system, individuals represent only themselves in free association and self-manage their own affairs in an equitable and just manner. Today, 
hierarchy creates a division where only a few decide our fate and our lives. This totally inefficient system neglects the natural human capacity, intelligence, and creativity of individuals. A group of 20 people conversing, debating, assessing, and considering all possibilities is better than a few that manage our affairs. Today, ideas are not considered or even heard in order to retain the division of power and wealth. This paternalistic system turns people into idiotic creatures and into people who walk through life like zombies, quiet, helpless, and alone. When others make decisions for us and tell us how to live and act, we naturally gravitate toward a state of infancy. People in society need to have a say, a choice, a sense of power, and their own voice. Our centralized and bureaucratic system of authority is crushing our spirit. Society and its institutions are not designed for human beings. Our system of representative democracy is an anti-human system and should have been left in the dustbin of the 20th century. Our best option for freedom, true freedom, both collective and individual, is through a system of participatory democracy. It is time to strip our masters of their power to dominate and humiliate us. Individual freedom has made tremendous strides in the last 100 years, but without collective freedom, whether it exists in the workplace or in the political realm, is only half freedom. Until then, we cannot say that we live in liberty. Economic systems are the ultimate engines that run society. These systems should express the most basic values of society such as well-being, mutual aid, individual autonomy, cooperation, free association, and voluntary action. These economic systems should also help cultivate positive human attributes such as goodwill, creativity, critical thought, honesty, tolerance, altruism, equality, and self-reliance. In many ways, these qualities follow the golden rule. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. While some left libertarians believe in free markets, most do not. For this reason, a left libertarian society would have a diversity of economic systems. People should have a choice because economic systems, more than anything else, directly affect their everyday lives. Any type of economic supremacy will produce a society where everyone drives the same cars, lives in the same homes, and receives the same education. In other words, think the same, act the same, and live the same lives. Human beings are diverse, so any kind of economic system should allow differences to flourish. Left libertarians, by their very nature, are against the kind of economic fundamentalism that is so prevalent in our political system today. For non-market libertarians, life is more than the car you drive, the home you live in. It's the pursuit of experiences worth tallying into a life. Non-market libertarianism is just a preference, one that I hold. Understanding a non-market system can take a lot of time. For most, the world can only be composed of state capitalism, state socialism, or a mix of the two. In speaking about a non-market system, I consider state socialism to be out of the question. The system of the Soviets and Maoism have proven to be disastrous for human beings because of the use of central planning and concentration of power. Under a non-market libertarian society, communities themselves are free associations based on voluntary action and living under libertarian principles. Decision-making and power become completely decentralized and are placed in the hands of every individual. There is no central body, and each economic apparatus is spread out and self-managed without the use of any coercion. As with worker self-management, decisions are made by participatory democracy. These communities can be as small as 100 people or as large as 500,000. Ideally, communities would be the size of a small town, allowing everyone to be heard and have a say over their own life. Because these are free associated communities, the people who decide to live in them also choose to come together to work towards some practical and achievable end. Like most free associations, individual freedom should be harnessed within it, but must also be extended to include collective freedom. In many ways, these communities work along the same lines as worker self-management. Through economic and community self-management, profits as the sole driving force are removed. This is not to say that economic self-management does not recognize things like supply and demand, scarcity, efficient use of resources, and all the other things essential for an economy to thrive. In many ways, I think non-market libertarians have better ways for resolving these issues. The purpose of this video is to lay down the basic framework. I should also say that the following should not be seen as a blueprint for a future society. Many criticize any attempt to describe non-market possibilities. This particular attempt in describing these systems should be viewed with extreme skepticism or even impossibilities. Predictions of the future are usually wrong. 
With that said, the following are just possibilities that may or may not be achievable. However, a representation of these systems helps one to visualize and conceptualize the ideas of a non-market libertarian community and its potentials. The idea of abolishing work for most left libertarians is central because they see work as something that stifles human growth. By work, I mean mandatory rote and unpleasant work. Obviously, things such as painting a picture, scientific inquiry, gardening for pleasure do not fit this category. The abolishment of work should be seen as a goal, something to strive for rather than a predicted reality. Under a self-managed community, large steps could be taken in this direction. For instance, the entire industry of advertising and public manipulation industries would be eliminated because they would no longer serve a purpose. There would no longer be massive allocation of business resources poured into creating artificial ones by manipulating people's emotions. There would be no advertisements to litter our public spaces and no manipulation of the media with corporate think tanks and front groups. Business would be self-managed, so wasted misallocations towards boards of directors and management would be returned to the workers. The fact that these communities would be self-managed and politicians and government would be eliminated means that bribing politicians with campaign donations would no longer exist along with its wasteful and bureaucratic spending. There would be no need to use government officials to expand markets by pushing them into other countries where they are not wanted. Patents and copyrights would be gone with information freely shared which means the billions spent on things like creating copycat drugs and technology would be a practice of the past. For these reasons and much more, it is believed that the work week could be cut extensively. Under free association, communities can pull their resources to figure out how to use technology to eliminate unwanted work. This can be done within the worker-owned company, but communities can also use their best minds to work towards these ends. Instead of engineers trying to figure out how to make a better blender or toaster, they can be utilized, if the engineer chooses, to design more efficient means and technology towards ending unnecessary work. Technological prototypes would probably take the form of more universalized technology that could be applied to most jobs, while work on more obscure uses would wait until later. The power behind a self-managed economy and community is that a society can take any form it desires. A community might come together and decide that 16 hours of work per week is more than sufficient for people to maintain their living standards. Perhaps this community decides a required work week to be 32 hours to help increase the standard of living. The first 16 hours would be devoted to the general maintenance of the city, so you would probably work in a profession that you are trained in such as nursing, carpentry, etc. These jobs would be under worker self-management. The second 16 hours would be devoted to an association of your choice. These associations should provide some kind of service to the community. The main purpose of these associations are to pursue the things that you love. These voluntary groups might take the form of music, cooking, gardening, teaching, physics, painting, architecture, engineering, sports, and so on. It doesn't matter as long as they are somehow productive. In a society like this, gardeners would beautify public spaces, musicians would play live shows for the public, painters and artists would decorate the town, physicists would make new discoveries for all. An engineer might work her first 16 hours running hydraulic systems for basic maintenance of the town, while her second 16 hours is devoted to making her own discoveries. This information would be freely shared for all. It is believed that under a system like this, massive discoveries would flourish without the short-term money-driven costs of research and development. Even the look of a city under economic self-management can take interesting directions. A community might want to pursue something like the older parts of Western Europe, where great cathedrals or civic places are centered in the middle of town, where everything from homes, restaurants, and shopping are walking distance, a place where architecture actually expresses its history, people, and culture. Or perhaps a community would want something more futuristic like the ideas proposed by Jacques Fresco, where an entire city is automated and people live in alien-looking homes, a place where science and community are central, and people look forward to a world of post-scarcity. Many left libertarians have suggested something like eco-friendly communities that would be artistically tailored to their natural surroundings. Their square or civic areas would be interlaced by streams, their places of assembly surrounded by groves, their physical contours respected and tastefully landscaped, their soil nurtured caringly to foster plant variety for themselves. The town would be decentralized and scaled to human dimensions using recycling as well as integrating solar, wind, hydraulic, and methane producing installations into highly spotted patterns for producing power. Agriculture, aquaculture, stock raising would be regarded as crafts. 
Perhaps none of these things sounds interesting to you. The whole idea is that you will be allowed to help decide rather than corporate and political interests that dominate our lives. Economic self-management should help facilitate people to consider their own ideas and use their own creativity to design the places they'd want to inhabit. These possibilities would also create higher participation since individuals might actually have an influence on the outcome. While each community is autonomous, they would not exist alone. Nearly all communities would be connected by a web and integrated into a federation. Federations have absolutely zero power. They only exist as a statistical and coordinating body. The federation would be a makeup of delegates from each community. The federation is also a free association where communities can disassociate any time. All interactions are designed so that self-interest facilitates mutual aid and cooperation of each community. Left libertarianism works like any other political and economic system. The only difference is that it is structured differently. These structures are designed solely for the purpose to maximize what is good in humanity, such as liberty and cooperation, while limiting what might be considered bad, such as greed and self-indulgence. This is why non-market libertarians prefer this system. We cannot exactly spend our way into these types of societies through market forces. In almost every culture throughout time, the golden rule has been a central ethical principle. Almost every religion and every school of philosophy have endorsed it. Today, the very idea of living by this idea, whether it is in the workplace or our daily lives, has become an impossibility. Any economic or political system should help generate the basic ideals of this simple rule to produce a society based on fraternity rather than hostility. We need to stop living by the fallacy that just because something is economically good means that it must be good. Economic systems should be built for human beings and not the other way around. True progress can only be achieved when human beings are liberated and exist in an environment that facilitates the liberty of personal self-management, worker self-management, and economic self-management. We have seen what happens when only a few make our decisions and build a world around their game. They have stifled the very essence of what it means to be human. It is finally time to liberate and unleash the beauty that lies hidden within each of us and help cultivate a better tomorrow.